Hello, this is the Contractor Coffee Club podcast presented by EGIA, and I'm your host, Mark Madison. This podcast is hosted on EGI.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, along with an archive of all previous episodes, a submission form for our listener Q&A, and the link to take the latest EGI snapshot survey. And Lucas, didn't we have a survey just recently? We did, yeah. Um, and just as kind of background for anybody who's not a member or is not familiar with our snapshot surveys, um, every month EGIA sur- surveys its contractor network on a specific focus area to gain insight on how contractors are evolving their business practices to achieve maximum success. Uh, at the conclusion of each month, EGIA publishes a summary of the survey results and makes findings available exclusively for EGIA members, all EGIA members. And then these monthly survey reports are a quick and easy way for contractors to see kind of what is working, what isn't working for their peers within the industry, uh, you know, best practices, stuff like that. Uh, and last in November, we surveyed people on choosing equipment brands. And yeah, I just wanted to share a couple of uh, a couple of questions from that report, Mark, and, and kind of get your take on it. So the first thing we asked was, do you carry multiple equipment, equipment brands uh, as opposed to just carrying one equipment brand? And we saw that 78% of people uh, are carrying multiple equipment brands. So 22% are carrying a single brand. Uh, Mark, obviously, you have a lot of experience selling one brand, many brands. Is, do you have a, is there a, a take on that, a, a best practice that you've perceived or a reason to do one or the other? Well, absolutely, Lucas. It's a great question. Uh, I, I actually call it borrow boldly from the best. You know, that's the great thing about the survey is you can find out what other contractors are doing and what works for them. So when you borrow boldly from the best, you can uh, you can get the same kind of results. Years ago, uh, in the late 80s, uh, John Lucas was a Sonic, and I became friends with him. And one day he was wearing uh, Etonic shoes and Nike uh, gear. And I said, John, why are you wearing two different brands? And he said, every year I renegotiate my contract with both companies. And they pay at that time, they would pay him like a million dollars a year or whatever, which is nothing now for NBA players. But back then, I just I just laughed out loud. And it dawned on me, contractors who carry more than one brand are really saying, I want to see who provides the best service to me. Now, if you're carrying a brand, you obviously believe in the brand and you're passionate about it. Uh, our listeners have heard me say, you know, if this was my mother's house, right? So uh, the the first question is, whatever brand you carry, Make sure that you have that in your house and your mother's house because you can't sell anything you don't believe in. But at the same time, by carrying a separate brand from a different distributor, what you're really saying is who's going to provide the best service for me, right? And so it's a friendly competition and competition's good for everybody. So if one company is providing better service, you give them a larger percentage of your business. And uh, it makes everybody just a little bit hungry. So I think carrying more than one brand is a really good idea. John Lucas taught me that. So that that would be my my first observation. And I guess I guess some of it, um, and I have the benefit of knowing what some of these quotes was some of the contractors told us, but I guess some of it also goes into kind of what you value and what, what your priority is in terms of who you work. Cause so most of, most of the people that we heard from who said they only carry one brand just simply said that more important than anything else really is their relationship with their distributor and somebody that they right. feel like they can really trust. And that distributor happens to carry one brand. Um, so do you have a, is there, do you have a kind of comment on that about the interactions with distributors and that, how that has weighed for you, for example, how that has kind of affected companies you've been with? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you said the word it's trust. And if I have a relationship with somebody, I trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Contractors are looking to save time and money. So if a if a distributor is saying, hey, here's the brand, we're going to do everything we can, and that can be something as simple as uh, delivering the equipment on site, bringing it out to the facility, 
making the job for the installation crew and the service guys easier. So that's a really a function of pure creativity. So how creative are the territory managers and the distributors in terms of serving the contractor? So, you know, whoever does the best job gets more business. It's pretty simple. Yeah, and I guess you know, that enables you to be very more. Darwinian, you know, <laughs> survival of the fittest, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess that kind of enables you to engender more trust with your with your homeowner, right? If the distributor is, is coming through and you know you can count on them to do what they're saying, then you know you're never gonna have to call up the homeowner and say, Ooh, I don't have I don't have the equipment, um, because my distributor didn't come through or something like that. Right. And if you're only carrying one brand, it's not a bad idea to say to somebody else, Look, I'll give you ten percent of my business and you guys demonstrate the competency. If you if you do all the things you say you're going to do, I'll give you a larger percentage. Sure, and I think that's really healthy. It's good business. Yeah, uh, and then just one more one more here, just because I think this is kind of an interesting subject, and we actually got a ton of this. is one of the most uh, filled out surveys we've ever done, so we really got a ton of feedback on this one. So it seems like it's something that contractors are pretty eager to to talk about and learn about. So I just wanted to do one more here, which was uh, what factors sure. were most important in selecting your equipment brands, and the leading ones that we saw back were quality of the brand was sixty eight percent of respondents. Uh, reputation was 44%. Standard warranty was 37%. Dealer incentives were 36%. Price was 35%. And then other was 38%. So a couple of things, Mark. One would be just, is there anything else that you think people should be looking for that maybe I didn't name and some of these would have been named under other? But then the other one was of all those, you know, those five main factors that were named, price was actually last, which I think sounds like that, that should be a, a good thing. Although you know this better than I do, but it sounds like people are valuing, you know, quality, and again, trust and, you know, having a brand that can stand behind over necessarily, you know, just getting the cheapest thing. Right. It's the four legs of the sales chair, trust, relationship, competency, and timing. You know, am I going to do business with somebody that I, that I don't trust? Probably not. Am I going to do business with somebody I don't like? Not if I have a choice. Do they keep their promises? Are they competent? And finally, is the timing right? And so I think you have to filter your decisions through all four of those factors. And for contractors, it, uh, for me, okay, how I chose, like I just chose a new dentist, right? And it turns out that his father was my first dentist, right? So that's like when I was 10 years old, I saw this guy's dad. So I'll go on a couple of days to get some work done. And, and I like the guy. Mine's pretty shallow. My wife says, wow, you, the, the whole bedside manner thing is really important to you. I said, absolutely. If I, if I don't like a guy, I'm not going to do business with him. If he asks me questions and he genuinely listens and then he offers me options and then delivers on his promises, then the relationship improves. The trust is enhanced and uh, we do more business. So do they keep their promises? Do they go the extra mile? Do they make your job easier? Do they save me time or money or both? And to me, in the end, it results in the name of the game. Yeah. So that is, that, that is, sounds like even more the, so most of the people who selected other, in fact, on how they were selecting their uh, equipment brands, most of those people in pick distributors and manufacturers and kind of like what that relationship. So you would say that for you is kind of the most important thing is, is more so than the reputation of a box, you know, or, or, uh, the price of that box is who you're dealing with, the, your distributor, your manufacturer, that sort of thing. And, and relationship you have with them more than any kind of quantifiable thing about the, the actual equipment you're being given. We're moving air from one place to another, right? That's really what we do. We take a cold air and move it to somewhere hot. We take hot air and move it to somewhere cold. To me, in the end, it's all about service. It's all about who's going the extra mile, who's making my job easier. And, you know, there's a lot of great distributors, a lot of great brands. In the end, to me, it's about the people. You know, there's some mitigating circumstances like 
you know, hurricanes in Tokyo and, and uh, the earthquakes and, you know, those things that, that get in the way of, of some manufacturers being able to deliver their promises. But in the end, in the long run, it's about trust, relationship, competency and timing. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. So should we, should we shift gears? Let's, let's shift gears. Yes. Yeah, so I'll just let everybody know then that the, uh, the latest snapshot survey summary report on uh, choosing equipment brands is now available in the member dashboard for all EGIA members, all membership levels. Uh, if you're not an EGIA member and you want to uh, take a look at this, there is a little excerpt up on the EGIA blog at egia.org slash blog. And uh, that would be a free, a free excerpt there, but it is a, it's a, Really interesting report. Like I said, we had more feedback and more contributions here than um, I think anyone we've had before. So it's obviously A means that it's a lot more accurate and there's a lot more data in this one. And, and B means it's a topic that it seems like people are pretty, uh, pretty eager to hear about. Well, and you know, the term brand, I'm giving it a shout out to uh, Blackhawk Heating in, in, uh, in Wisconsin. I was just there last week and I'm literally sink, sipping a bottle of water with their brand on the, on the label. Yeah. You know, and they gave me a hat and they gave me a shirt and they're right. So it's all about brand, right? It's all about the relationship. They also sent me the biggest thank you note I've ever received signed by everybody in the office and all their technicians. And, you know, you know when, when somebody goes to that extent, how do you not love them? How do you not give them more? How do you give, not give them more time? Yeah. And keep them so, in mind, I guess. Right. Like that's, that's a, exactly. a name that's going to stick in your mind for, for a long time. It just cause from, and from things that didn't take that much, I guess, effort on their part, right. It was, it took some thought and some effort, but it, you know, it wasn't, they didn't have to rearrange a whole day to write that thank you card. And yet it, it resonates. Yeah, it was powerful. So that's a nice segue into the word faith. I knew I was never going to change my luck till I got my courage up to try. And when I went ahead and spread my wings, I found out I could fly. Delbert McClinton's song, Leap of Faith. Faith is the opposite of fear. The two cannot coexist in the same time. They're mutually exclusive. This is great news for anyone in sales. In baseball, great hitters are the players who can hit safely three out of ten times. In fact, it's the only sport where failure is a huge part of any success that they have. That success is one-third of the time at the plate. That's crazy. And yet most salespeople, especially when they first start out, must navigate through adversity with a close ratio of 10, 15, or even 20%. We must understand the numbers. Babe Ruth held the major league record for the most home runs, 714. Now, most people don't remember, or certainly not old enough to remember who he was, but he's one of the most famous baseball players of all time. Yes, he had 714 home runs, but what most people don't remember is he also had another major league record. He struck out 1,330 times. That means a ratio of two strikeouts for every home run. When asked one day how he felt about striking out eight times in a row in a doubleheader, the Babe laughed it off. Replying to the reporter's question, he said, look, I hit a home run and won in every 11 at-bats. I got all my strikeouts out of the way. I wouldn't want to be pitching against me tomorrow. I'm due. The next day, he hit two home runs. Everyone forgot about the day before. That's exactly what we must do in sales if we're going to enjoy a long and fruitful career. Forget the no's. Examine them, yes. Playing them back in your head over and over again? Absolutely not. Remember the yeses and learn from the no's. Tom Watson was the founder of IBM. He told his salespeople, when you first start out, you must double your failure rate. Faith, it's a belief without evidence. It's trusting in yourself, in your company, and your ability to learn, grow, adapt, change, and shift gears. Bruce Lee said, always be yourself. Express yourself. Have faith in yourself. Do not go out and look for a successful personality and duplicate it. The greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children, Billy Graham said, is not money or material things accumulated in one's life, but rather a legacy of character and faith. Here's some ideas that'll help you develop your faith in yourself, your products, and your services. 
And guess what? They work. Number one, read every letter, email, text, and thank you note sent to you and your company. It'll build your belief in your value proposition. Number two, make a list of all your notable accomplishments from first grade to present day. List them in chronological order. I've done this many times in my journals over the years. Success breeds success. Number three, ask your clients why they do business with you and your company, especially your favorite clients. Find out the causes of your success. By doing that, you can not only replicate it, but you can teach it to others. Number four, ask for a quote from them. Put quotes on a one sheet and use it in all your proposals. I'm a big movie guy. I tend to lean towards movies that get great reviews. Number five, read every sales book you can. When you're reading, you're really only looking for one idea. And for me, it takes me about 15, 20, 25 minutes to get one idea from one good book. That's why I read every single morning. I'm reading a biography right now of Harpo Marx, one of the Marx brothers. It's fascinating. Number six, keep a journal. Capture your wins. When something good happens, write it down. You close a big sale, write it down. You lose the sale, write it down and ask yourself why. In fact, what I teach in sales training is the best thing you can do if you're a salesperson, especially in your first year, is after every single call, sit down and ask yourself what went well on that call and what could I improve? And then list everything you can think of, especially right after the call where the ideas are still fresh. Number seven, conduct an autopsy when you lose a sale. Go back to the prospect and ask him why he chose not to buy from you. Capture the lessons in your journal. And it's important how you approach that. Just say, look, I understand you've chosen to go with ABC Mechanical. And hey, they're a good company. I'm sure they'll do fine. I'm not here to get you to change your mind. What I want to do, though, because I want to be the very best sales professional I can be, is I want you to hurt my feelings. Tell me what I did wrong so I can change it in the future. And the more often than not, they'll, they'll be honest. Sometimes they'll say things like, well, it's my brother-in-law's company. I had no choice. Well, there's some things you don't have any control over. A mentor of mine said to me one day, it's easy to trust God when things are going well. The real trust is you, the real test is if you trust him when it's not. You know, when you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot in it, right? Sometimes you got to believe before you see the proof. You can wait a lifetime for a moment of truth. Sometimes all it takes is a leap of faith. The ending of Bill McClinton's song, Leap of Faith. So do you have faith or fear? That's my question for you this morning. I thought I'd talk a little bit about competitors. Albert Hubbard said, do your work with your whole heart and you'll succeed. There's so little competition. I think it was Woody Allen that said, 80% of success is just showing up. Have you ever met somebody who bashed his competitors? Did you buy from him or her? I never have. It's ineffective and petty habit. Smashing the other guy's furniture never makes mine look any better. If a prospect ever asks you about a competitor, the correct response is, from what I hear, they're a fine company. Or, by all accounts, they do good work. Every company needs one healthy, successful, friendly competitor in the marketplace. Having good, healthy competition raises the bar for everyone, as we previously discussed. I read through three newspapers a day. Now, having said that, let me make a distinction. I only read the sports, the business, and the entertainment sections, never the front page. I don't watch the news or listen to it on the radio, with the occasional exception of NPR. I find them engaging and content-rich. But I especially like to read quotes from coaches in sports pages, especially after a win or a loss. The classiest, most successful coaches, think Pete Carroll or Steve Kerr, never bash the competition. In fact, the opposite is true. They praise their competitors. They'll say things like, we got out coached today. 
or all the credit goes to their team. They wanted it more than us. We have some work to do. What's your position when it comes to competition? What exactly do you say, not only to your prospects, but to your internal customers, your technicians, your office staff? I found that one of the quickest ways to win and hold the confidence of others is to apply the rules spoken by one of the world's great diplomats, Ben Franklin. The turning point in his business career came when he decided, I'll speak ill of no man and speak all the good I know of everybody. You see, praise pays. Lift up your competition. It'll get back to them. The wrestler John Cena said, be loyal to those who are loyal to you and respect everyone, even your enemies and competition. Nancy Piercy, a best-selling author, said, competition is always a good thing. It forces us to do our best. A monopoly renders people complacent and satisfied with mediocrity. Herbert Hoover, the former president, said, competition is not only the basis of protection to the consumer, but it's the incentive to progress. Here's three habits to adopt in your business. They'll yield untold benefits to you and yours. Number one, make it a rule not to criticize anyone, especially your competition. Number two, find a friendly competitor in your marketplace. Even refer business to them when a prospect asks for a name. Make certain you share similar philosophies and price points. And number three, praise pays. Get in the habit of becoming a good finder. Let me repeat that. Become a good finder. It's the opposite of fault finder. The other guy's or gal's furniture looks just fine. Go to work on improving yours in every way. Keep working on acquiring more cash. K-A-S-H. Knowledge. Attitude skills, and habits. This is a better use of your time and talents. Your thoughts, Lucas? Yeah, I think that it makes all the sense in the world. And bashing somebody else's furniture, for example, it doesn't make, it makes me think that you don't have any confidence in your own. If you had confidence in your, in your own product, in your own you know, service, in your own ability to install a furnace, then you would talk about your own acumen, your own ability to do that rather than tear down the other guy. So it just makes me wonder about the other guy. It doesn't make me think any highly of you. Exactly. Well, it's really a place of low self-esteem and big ego, isn't it? And that's really what we're talking about. Well, the last thing this morning I'd like to talk about is presentations. Patricia Fripp's one of my mentors. She's a wonderful speaker. She said, when you leave your house, all speaking is public. I was attending a two-day sales training many years ago when I heard a sentence that changed my point of view in philosophy. Like a dog jumping up and wagging his tail when the master jiggles his car keys. Up to that point in the training, I hadn't heard anything new. But when I heard this, it changed everything. The instructor said, when making a presentation to a group, begin by saying the following. At the end of my presentation, I'm going to ask you to make a decision. Is that fair enough? And when you ask that question to a couple sitting at a kitchen table, they have to say, oh, of course, or at that point, give you an objection. I've used this to great effect dozens of times over the years. It's such a simple idea. And if you think about it, it's brilliant. You're challenging your prospects in public to commit to making a decision. Now, one of the one or two things is going to happen. They'll say yes, or they have to tell you why or why not. They'll also force you to take a hard look at your own qualifying process. Because if they say, well, no, we're just getting numbers, then you didn't qualify them on the front end. And if you're like me, the point of any presentation is to close. This is a marvelous close when presenting to more than one person. It's not bad for a single person as well. John McTiernan, the Hollywood director who did Die Hard, said, the entertainment is in the presentation. Jack Canfield, one of my mentors, said, when you really need help, people will respond. Sincerity means dropping the image facade and showing a willingness to be vulnerable. Tell it the way it is, lumps and all. Don't worry if your presentation isn't perfect. Ask from your heart. Keep it simple. And people will open up to you. 
Emma Stone, the award-winning actress, said, when I was 14 years old, I made this PowerPoint presentation and I invited my parents into my room and gave them popcorn. It was called Project Hollywood 2004, and it worked. I moved to L.A. in January. Here's 12 things to remember for your next presentation. And guess what? They work. Number one, be passionate. Sales is a transfer of belief and enthusiasm. Number two, create a killer proposal that supports all your claims. When I first started selling commercial service agreements, all my presentations were in a 8 by 11 free ring binder with photographs, cost justification, quotes from happy clients. Number three, tell a story. Stories are sticky. Share a success about an existing customer that struggled with the same issues this prospect does. Number four, be different. Consider giving up PowerPoint. I remember reading a book one day, gosh, this was 20 years ago, and he said, put a little drama into your presentation. So I was, I was dealing with a facilities manager of a very large building, and this was about a $50,000 proposal. So I came up with an idea. I took two filters that were 10 by 10. One was pleated, a real high quality filter, and the other one was the, you know, the cheap ones with the metal and the, and the oil on the, on the cloth, right? And I said, here's, and I took a big black uh, bolt of cloth and some Morton salt. And I said, here's the filters in your system right now. And I shook some salt over the cheap filter and most of it went through onto the black cloth. Then I folded it in half and I opened up the pouring mechanism of the salt and I poured four times as much and shook it twice as long and no salt went through. And I said, this is a metaphor. I said, the quality of the filters that we provide also reflect the quality of service. And the guy was just blown away. I put a little drama into my presentation. That's what I mean by be different. Take a risk. Number five, make certain you have all the decision makers in the room. Back to my earlier point. Number six, six ask questions, rhetorical or actual. Does this make sense? I love that question. Number seven, have a one sheet. That's a page of quotes from delighted clients. People in similar positions or industries. Actual first and last names with job titles. If you really want to take some risks, include phone numbers and email addresses. Number eight, at the end of the presentation, I'm going to ask you to make a decision. Is that fair enough? I just love that question. And it's so simple. Number nine, rehearse your presentation over and over again until you have it down cold. Practice in front of the mirror. Practice in front of other people and ask for feedback. In fact, why not consider videotaping your presentation and then watching it and have other people critique you? Number 10, ask for the sale. Use a trial close like, did you want to bill this monthly or quarterly? What's better for you? But you have to ask. Unassertive salespeople have skinny kids. Don't be shy. Ask for what you want. Number 11, if you get an objection, ask, in addition to that, is there anything else? They say, well, you know, your price is kind of high. Okay, fair enough. In addition to that, is there anything else? Well, I need to talk to my wife. Okay, in addition to that, is there anything else? Well, we need to get some other bids. Okay, in addition to that, is there anything else? Well, no, that's it. The last one is the true one. If they're going to get some bids, that's fine. But make sure you're the last person to present. It may mean coming back again. But the last presentation almost always wins the day. And number 12, detach. Adopt a casual indifference to the outcome. A prospect can smell desperation. Be confident, yet detached. Remember the following. SW, 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 next. Some will, some won't. So what? Someone's waiting. Next prospect. Sales is a numbers game. If your funnel is full of prospects and you know your close ratio, you can present with confidence. I love to present. I love to close. I love the thrill of the hunt. 
Do you? One more thing. After every presentation, ask yourself two questions in your journal. Back to what I said earlier. What did I do well in this presentation? What really clicked? And number two, what could I do better or different next time? If you develop this habit, your close ratio will improve. How do I know? Well, I've done this for over 30 years, and I still do it to this day. It forces me to analyze and evaluate my progress. And by the way, my close ratio is over 80%. John Cotter wrote, We worry about appearing awkward in a presentation, but up to a point, most people seem to feel more comfortable with less than perfect speaking abilities. It makes the speaker more human, more vulnerable, meaning he is less likely to attack our decisions or beliefs. In a word, authentic. Be authentic. Be vulnerable. Be real. Believe in yourself. Believe in your products. Believe in your service. And believe in your company. The best is yet to come. Well, Lucas... What do we need to add? Have we forgotten anything? No, I think we're all good. I think that was that was a very interesting take on the the presentation and the you know being polished is not always the best thing in the world. Certainly, you want to have a good presentation, but you know we've we've seen people, salesmen in particular, right, who when they seem too polished, it seems like they're slick and trying to pull it over on you. And it's okay to say um occasionally, right? <laughs> Just not forty-seven times in three minutes. Ideally, yeah, you want you want to be polished, but there's uh, yeah, it's the, there's the potential to be over polished, I guess. My question for you, Mark, since you mentioned it is this time of the year, this will be releasing on January first, so we're about a week late. But you talked about John McTiernan, director of the seminal action film Die Hard. Is Die Hard a yes. Christmas movie? Absolutely. That's why I watch it every year. Yeah. So do all 95% of the guys I know. They've, uh, they've all seen it. Here's what's crazy. I asked my audiences, the guys, they say, how many have seen Die Hard more than five times? And everybody raises their hand. My hand Ten? is raised. Yeah. Yep. Right. And they say, how many of you own the movie? And if you happen to see it on TV, you'll watch it anyway. And they all raise their hand again. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's just one of those well, what if he's about? What if he's about to get to the part where it says, now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. I can't miss that. <laughs> or the part where the German guy gets the chain around his neck. He's <laughs> dead. He's yeah. not dead. Carl. Yeah. <laughs> Carl with a K. He's a German guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well. I think we're all good. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're good. Well, that'll do it for today's episode. As always, visit EGIA.org slash podcast to find this episode and an archive of previous episodes. The online form to submit your questions for our mailbag segment. Links to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Google Play, and the link to the latest EGI Snapshot survey. For more information about EGI membership, and you haven't joined yet, what are you waiting for? Visit www.egi.org slash join. I'm Mark Madison. Thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. I'll see you next time.